I got a lot of emails equally from people who were conservative who came center as well. And their stories are similar just with the kind of hypocrisy on their on their party side. A lot of people who are religious who felt that they had abandoned those kind of principles. So I hear I hear from everyone. I just think there's I think there's a huge huge population of people who feels like no one is really speaking for them or to them right now. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we are off this week, but I'm excited to share an interview we just recently did with Bridget Fetisi. She's the host of Dumpster Fire and Walk-In's Welcome, and she comes from an eclectic background. She was a writer for Playboy, and she's got a lot to say about the state of the political parties in this country, and what I love about her is how authentic and honest she is, and she's just really humble about what she knows and doesn't know. And you'll notice in this interview that there's you know, probably a little bit of a disagreement we have about whether, like, quote-unquote, quote, both sides are to blame for the political state of this country in equal measure or not, or like whether, you know, certain ways of describing our political process or going about it could be deemed nihilist or not. But you'll see this. And I think this is what makes the interview really interesting is that a lot of people feel the way that she does. And we dig in about just how to really engage right now in this political system. So let's get into it. Welcome, Bridget. How are you? I'm great. I just spilled my coffee right before I came on because I'm pregnant, and I guess that's like a thing. Um, <laughs> being clumsy. I'm good though. I'm I'm really excited to be here and talk to all of you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, so to kick it off, uh, I want to read back a tweet of yours that I loved, where you said, "I'm not conservative. I'm not liberal. I'm not libertarian. I don't identify as anything. Please respect my political pronoun." Um, and that's great. And I'm wondering if we can get a better sense of your story and how you ended up at that place. And I'd love to hear more about like your realization of the political homeless tribe. Yeah, it wasn't. I don't know anything. So I'll, I'll <laughs> lead with that. Um, and I'm not a policy wonk. And I feel I got caught in the crossfire of the culture wars a bit inadvertently. I was writing, I always wanted to be a writer. I moved out to LA to be a comedian and write scripts and just do that thing. And then I ended up um, getting my first freelance gig at Playboy, writing a column. And then that turned into a weekly column. And I had not been very online and I didn't finish college. So I wasn't, I was not aware of a lot of the shifts that I think that took place in the culture while I was just waiting tables. And I, another big part of my story is um, recovery. So I think I was probably just like drunk and trying to make end meet, ends meet from a lot of my 20s and well into my 30s. And I stumbled really onto the like very online people. And just by sake of writing for Playboy. And I wrote pieces thinking that, you know, obviously I was used to kind of the right wing men coming after me for being a feminist or for being sex positive or being promiscuous or defending blowjobs or whatever, whatever it was <laughs> that I was doing. And what I didn't expect was a left wing pushback from the younger feminists who were telling me that I was internalizing the patriarchy and that internalizing misogyny 
And I mean, I was I I had editors joke that I was like the biggest bro writing for their (laughs) feminist (laughs) or their male magazines that were online. But I really was just like this Gen X person who kind of stumbled out of the out of the wilderness into the culture wars. And then as everybody collectively lost their mind in 2015, um, which was around the time that I started writing, I was noticing a lot of my, I'm also in comedy. So a lot of my comedy friends, I was like, you guys are going to joke Trump into the White House. Like this guy (laughs) has a real chance, whether you realize this or not, you're telling him he's a buffoon, you're mocking him. And then overnight he went from this punchline to literally Hitler. And I was like, you can't do that. (laughs) This makes sense. You can't just go from like making fun of this guy smugly to suddenly he's the biggest threat in the world. And I just got so much pushback. And uh, I saw a lot of things on the feminist side, making fun of Ivanka that I felt were kind of double standards, just the way they talked about women on the right. And I was... um, And Bridget, before you go on, just when you're at Playboy, is there a particular piece that got a lot of backlash when you look back? Like, was there anything you wrote where you're like, wow, this (laughs) (laughs) this storm's coming? Well, one of the pieces, actually, one of they they, so they had me write, um, I wrote in kind of like in defense of blowjobs because there was a piece going around that was going viral and it was like, why I don't suck dick. Per- I don't know how like gross I can be on this, but yeah, that just was go the ahead. title. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then that was the first, I was like, let me write a defense of this. It's not just all misogyny and whatever. Some women enjoy this and whatever. And that was a hard conversation to have with my poor father. God bless him. I was like, Dad, I have some good news and some bad news. <laughs> the good news is I sold my first piece. The bad news is... I'm defending blowjobs. Um, and then I wrote a couple more freelance and I kind of kept saying, let me do a weekly column. Let me do a weekly column. And then they said, we have a great idea. You should do a weekly column. And I, they wanted me to pitch a bunch of different ideas. And I pitched one that was when I was back in like my early 20s, I was the, writing for this website called buddyhead.com, which was huge in LA back in like around 2000 and I was the buddy head girl and I wrote a sex column and the number one question I always got was why do women date assholes and I still got that all the time even at Playboy and so I pitched this piece um women date assholes because you're a pussy and (laughs) and what's the thesis yeah okay (laughs) I'm, 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 I'm curious my thesis was essentially like it's not that because women always get blamed for this it always gets put on the women and i was like maybe it has something to do with you guys that were dating these like quote unquote assholes and then i did these it was kind of tongue-in-cheek too i did these funny diagrams and like venn diagrams and um this was before i i was probably pretty new and not new but i was i didn't start comedy till 2010 and i didn't I was not aware of how big Joe Rogan's following was at the time for some reason. Again, I just kind of stumbled online and he saw it and retweeted it. This was before we were friends through comedy, et cetera. And then it went huge and like the backlash to it from both sides was um, overwhelming to me. And then I did oh, So you're piece. getting left, right backlash left for that? Left and right, yeah. 
because I was using words like beta male and alpha male, which on the left are just, you know, they're they're reductive, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was I was writing like I was writing for Maxim in the 90s, which was my my dream was like that was like my dream job. And it was not the 90s anymore. And it was not Maxim. Yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> well, it sounds like you get a lot of pushback from the right and the left because of all these different things. You had a 2019 essay called The Battle Cry of the Politically Homeless. Mm -hmm. And in that you shared that people were like flooding your inbox with all these different political grievances they had because they, they were kind of aligning with a lot of the things that you were saying. Can you share with us some of the stories that you were getting from from I'm from all of that, still getting them. Still I getting still them. Still am getting them. That email is so crazily active. We actually wow. on Dumpster Fire just said, you know, tell us your stories of being red pilled, purple pilled, black pilled, right pilled, white pilled, God pilled, whatever pill you're taking or combination, and. It's crazy to me just people write me essays. They're so desperate to tell their story and they don't feel heard. You know, there's this inbox is like their safe space, for lack of a better word, where they can say, here's what happened to me. And we get the funniest for some of the funniest to the saddest things. Like some people got canceled by family members for their views on whether it's Trump vaccine, like starting with Trump and moving forward. So the fallouts people had interpersonally is a big one that I hear about. And or the small, like I call them micro cancellations that we never hear about, where it's like someone gets kicked out of a mommy group for saying the wrong word or mm. something. There was like one at a farmer's market that they it's like <laughs> stepping over these invisible lines that they don't know exist. And I mean, imagine I can't imagine what it's like for somebody who's not terminally online to step over something like this because it was hard for me and I was young enough and adept enough to kind of all of a sudden get immersed into it and catch up. But if I had kids and was raising a family and trying to just pay the bills and stepped into something like this, it would it would be really disorienting. You're like, what what are we saying now? Why can't I say the word women? What is going on? <laughs> um, it's confusing. So there's a lot of different stories. And then there's just kind of the funny ones. Like a woman wrote us last week that she, it was when they came for the 80s movies. And this was a woman. She's like, they came for my 80s movies and that was it. I'm like, oh, that was, that's when you abandoned all parties. And you're like, you won't take my titties from my <laughs> 80s movies and my, and my like blatant misogyny or whatever. <laughs> um so I hear and then I hear during the election that was interesting. I put out another call and I was blinded by my own bias. I think blinded by my own bias, blinded by my confirmation bias of people writing me. But I thought I was surprised that Trump didn't win just because there seemed to be so much backlash. What I didn't what I kind of underestimated was how worn out people were from him. Like he just wore people down and they were tired of it. And I might have a higher tolerance for that kind of dysfunction just because of my own upbringing. So I just, mm -hmm. I was like very well prepared for this kind of dysfunction. But I think most people were just had enough. And the, I got a lot of emails equally from people who were, conservative who came center as well 
and their stories are similar just with the kind of hypocrisy on their on their party side a lot of people who are religious who felt that they had abandoned those kind of principles so i hear i hear from everyone and i heard from i mean i heard from diehard you know anarchists who hadn't voted who decided to come off the bench and vote it was it's <laughs> wild but i love i love it i and- love hearing i just think there's i think there's a huge huge population of people who feels like no one is really speaking for them or to them right now. You know, one thing I grapple with is the sort of sense that there are deep flaws within uh, the two parties that we have, but also a desire not to be a nihilist or a relativist who equates them on every issue, uh, but also somebody who's not promoting apathy, right? Because, you know, on any given election, People have to make a choice, right? And right. how do you balance that? Because, you know, it can, and we, we here at Lost Debate deal with this all the time where we try not to use this term both sides, for instance, a lot, because it's like yeah. such a crush to be like, all right, we got this story. We got to make sure that we, we call out, quote unquote, both sides. But sometimes there's, you know, like January 6th is a good example for us. It's like, that wasn't the type of thing where like we felt like there was like a, a balanced, uh, at least from our perspective, set of flaws within the two political parties on that issue. So how do you deal with this? Um, and how do you come out on sort of like how to be civically engaged when the choices are so flawed? I mean, to be honest, I it's hard. And I didn't I didn't I didn't vote for president because I didn't feel like in out of principle, either person had earned my vote and said something that I believed in. And I really I got so much crap from both sides for being open about that and both sides are saying you're you're gonna be the reason the other guy wins depending on whoever the other guy was for them and I first of all I'm in California it doesn't matter my vote really doesn't matter and that sucks it's it's it sucks that there are states where your vote doesn't really matter and you can toss it away if I was in you know ask me that question if I was in a more contested state and um uh, it's an it's a it's easy for me to cop out and do that, which it does feel like a cop out. And I wrestle with nihilism all across the board, not just politically and civically. I wrestle with it. I'm a re- in recovery. <laughs> I mean, like, what's it all for? Gets that that line of thought is um, deadly for me if I get on that train. So I have to really wrestle with trying to push back against that in myself on a daily basis as it is. And it's hard not to be cynical right now. I don't I don't want to promote cynicism or apathy, although it is a large part of like snarky kind of that I know that I'm that like girl that's kind of sitting in the back making fun of it all. Like the I I understand that when those criticisms are are kind of thrown at me there's they're not all wrong you know a lot of the criticism I get I think is really accurate and fair and some of it is just a defense mechanism I don't really know how to be how to fix this problem it seems like there would be an opportunity for a third party to maybe rise and give people more options but that doesn't even seem it seems like anytime there's any traction in that direction people get attacked for throwing their vote away or helping the other guy win. So 
if we run into that over and over and over again, how does how does anything ever change? And and if the two parties seem to be in this like death spiral of um, doubling down on their own worst instincts, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that leaves people like and, me and many others. And if you had a third party, what would you like? What would the platform be like? What are some of the things that you would love to see? in our political debates right now that that aren't being represented like issues uh stances. I mean healthcare is a big one. I don't understand why there isn't a party that can just latch on to that singularly alone in terms of trying to make some sense of this system. There's so many things that seem like there there would be it would be beneficial for some transparency at at all in this. And I know that and it with seems- with healthcare, what would you want? Like you know, for instance, like when I hear that, my instinct, and I wasn't a Bernie person, but my sense would be like, all right, like, are you asking for somebody who's representing like a universal healthcare perspective or or some some other solution to the problem? This is where I always feel like I get so tripped up because I hear arguments from all sides, and I'm not sure that I, ch- you know, I see the government try and handle certain things, even like our EDD problem that we had, and and. California I'm like why would I trust these people with health care I don't I so I'm what's EDD sorry there was like a huge scandal in California where billions of dollars that were supposed to go to the unemployed and dis- disabled went missing no one's been held accountable for it nobody has had to I mean billions and billions of dollars were just scammed or stolen from the state and it's so disorganized and then people who really needed the money weren't getting the money. And this is barely, the fact that you don't even know about this says everything to me that I need to know. This was barely a blip in the news and it should be a huge story. You know, when people were talking about the recall election for Newsom and they're like, oh, they're wasting millions of dollars. I'm like, you don't know how many billions of dollars California, (laughs) just tell me you don't know anything about California. That would be easy. Look at our rail that we've been building for however long. Like there's so many problems in this state that we could be using that money for. And it goes AWOL and no one's held accountable for it. So yeah. when people ask me that question, I, I don't know. I'm not like, how do you fix healthcare? If I could, that's like, how do you fix homelessness? If I could figure that out, I wouldn't, I would be a, a billionaire or sitting on a yacht laughing at everybody. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so, but with that in mind, like given like if, if, you know, if, if, if it's not obvious what the solution is and maybe it's, it's so complicated and intractable that maybe there isn't one solution, like, should we be easier on the parties? Like for their, you know, their flawed approaches to that issue, for example, like, you know, cause you have in the democratic party, you have universal healthcare represented, Medicare for all represented, the current system represented. And then on the Republican side, you have probably a more you know, like I think like some of the stuff you're saying about how expensive it is to build rail or some of the waste in the system, like that would seem to be something that you hear a lot from Republicans. Uh, and so like, should we be a little easier on the parties? Cause it seems like they're representing different parts of what you said. They're just not all representing them in one person necessarily. Right. And it seems like it's always the most extreme version of what they're trying to do. And then that thing doesn't get passed. Yeah. So Instead of saying we need police reform, we're going to double down with defund the police, which is wildly unpopular. We know that that most people all across the board don't agree with this sentiment in general. 
And it's not something that we could even really do realistically. And then it fails because it was almost like it was set up to fail from the get-go. So, I mean, you're seeing this. It's interesting to me to watch a lot of the kind of farther left progressives getting very mad at this current administration because they went out with, um, you know, getting rid of like college debt, for example. And that is pretty much off the table at this point. I think there, there, there were so many promises that were made that seem empty. And I, I think both administrations have left their constituents feeling um, duped. You know, it, it's like at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like the jobs came back for the blue collar workers, the, the, the colleges didn't get defunded, that there is a large population of Americans who I think are feeling this in a real way. Um, many administrations left and right and the, and the policies that came from that. And still it seems like they don't really get heard and don't matter. And they seem, they do seem pretty mad and, defeated and then you see this kind of populism rising on the right and left which is um unsettling and not it's usually never a great sign but of course this is going to happen when the the working class has kind of just been they it's why i hated politics when i was a waitress i just hated it i've come full circle in my beliefs and that I felt like as somebody who was just waiting tables nobody cared about me that I was getting kind of screwed on both sides like I was paying for the top and the bottom which was fine but I was just working to make ends meet and that no my vote didn't really matter to these people because I wasn't poor enough or rich enough for anybody to care Mm -hmm. and I see that everywhere now that and that was that was like when I was in my twenties. So we're talking about twenty years of something, a process that's been happening that seems to be getting worse. Yeah. I mean it's what you're saying resonates with so many people that I know who just say like there is no political party for like the working class, the middle class, the vast majority of people in the country. It just seems like you said it's just all for the rich or all for the poor. But I kinda wanna spin things in a different direction. We've been talking a lot about cancel culture on our show recently. Um, I'm sure you're all aware about all the stuff that's going on with Joe Rogan and everything like that. We've been having a lot of different conversations about that. Um, So we want to get your opinion about cancel culture. And has there ever been a legitimate attempt from anyone to try to cancel you? I mean, I lost my job and it, 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 it's hard because you cancel culture operates on a social level in a way in my industry in which I won't necessarily get fired. I just won't get jobs. Uh, There are doors that will close that I won't know are closed to me. Maybe I'll get put up for a job in a writer's room and someone will have seen my Twitter and be like, not that right wing asshole. Like she's MAGA chick or whatever. And um, so I'm not sure. And even with like writing for Playboy, it was just, oh, we're taking the column internally. You know, it wasn't necessarily like you're fired because you said this thing. So you never really know. And I think the problem with that is that it leaves people feeling super paranoid. I just was like, all right, whatever. Um, but then people end up having this kind of paranoia. People who really have been canceled, who I've spoken with, they live with it constantly. Like, is this 
because I wasn't qualified for their job or is this because someone Googled me and something from the past came up that I did or said? And that's the thing I don't think people really comprehend about the cancel culture is how that Google search follows you forever and you can never really get out from under it. And if you're big enough to kind of ride it out, then... You, you know, we've seen that people can be okay, but if you're if you're not a big person who can't write it out, you you have to reinvent yourself and pivot. And I mean, a lot of these people have spoken to me, and I have a lot of mixed feelings about it because I think some of the, you know, it, it is like there are groups of people historically who haven't had the same voice and power and the internet is great because it made it that equal playing field and gave people an opportunity to come out and say these are inequalities that we're experiencing and here's how I mean we saw this with even like the me too movement but I think what happens is it just becomes like <laughs> there everything gets um, that that mob mentality is real. People get really excited. I, I will never forget because I had just gone online when the Justine Sacco, who was the first person who got really kind of publicly canceled in that way. Uh, for people who don't know, she was the woman who got on the plane. She was in PR. She made a stupid, horrible, bad joke about going to South Africa and hoping that she didn't get AIDS. Oh, yeah, and by the time she that. landed... Yeah. The whole entire world was tweeting, has Justine Sacco landed yet? And I was observing this and it still gives me chills because I was like, guys, this is bad. Like, this is a horrible thing that's happening right now. And you might think you're like the good guy who's doing this, but this is crazy. I was watching it like, this is nuts. This woman is sleeping on a plane right now and her life is <laughs> Do we know anything about destroyed. what happened to her? I've wondered about this. Like, what happens to people what? like that? Do we know anything about what happened to her since? She's, I think, back working somewhere, I believe. I feel like I just recently read an article. I would have to, like, where is she now? Which is also weird. Like, where are these canceled people now? Yeah. Like, <laughs> kids that were on a milk box yeah. or something. <laughs> you know, on this front, I uh, founded a nonprofit called Second Chance Studios, which employs people coming out of the prison system. And mm. what's interesting is, and I come from democratic politics, so I, a lot of my circles are people on the left. Uh, I could employ a person who's murdered somebody before, held up a liquor store, you know, where they're real victims who some people who might not, you know, be with us anymore with families who are grieving and all of that. And what's fascinating to me is I don't get any pushback on the left for that. Like, and that's in a way good because I do think that when people come out of the system, I believe in redemption. I believe in second chances. What's fascinating though is if I hire somebody who said the wrong thing a few years ago or maybe even said the right thing but you know people just felt like it was wrong the amount of heat that we would get for that is uh would be just dwarf anything for somebody who actually physically harmed somebody else yeah and so that's just a contradiction that that is maddening to me but at the same time you know one thing we've been exploring here is like how do we both take seriously cancel culture, which I do, and a lot of people on the left think I like I take it too seriously, but at the same time, it's thrown around now, like John Gruden, you know, like there are people who are defending John Gruden saying this is cancel culture. I'm like, well, I don't know. It's kind of, sometimes it's accountability, you know, and like yeah. people are appropriating 
the term, I think, to go too far. Like, I can believe that Aziz Ansari was treated unfairly, but maybe John Gruden probably could have been, been even harsher. Because, like, for me, I want to take, like, I take seriously that cancel culture. I think it's real. But also, at the same time, I think there are some bad faith actors applying it, like, the term and the, and the sort of backlash against cancel culture in some ways that make me uncomfortable as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I live in this tension, like, all the, you know, whether whether or not it's clear i i constantly am trying to i think there is something to be said about accountability and people will say this isn't cancel culture it's accountability culture and there is something to be said for it and um i don't want to like throw things out again just this idea of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. um i i think i deal with this a lot around i mean not to like wade into the most controversial topic ever but I see this a lot around like the trans activist movement where if you might as a woman if I might push back and say hey some of this stuff feels minimizing to me as a woman and I'm being erased or whatever but then there are these kind of bad faith actors who are like on the right will be like yeah we're standing up for women like you don't give a shit about women like you're not you're not you think I should be in the kitchen barefoot like give me a freaking break you're not you don't give a crap and I had this t-shirt years ago before um, people even really knew what the word woke meant in the mainstream and it was you're not woke you're annoying because some of it just strikes me as so annoying (laughs) like I can't even take it seriously but now it's become a word that's so charged and weaponized and it's like bad faith people it's now everywhere and I'm like we're taking that t-shirt down we, it was it was ahead of its time this is one thing that drives <laughs> me crazy as somebody who's been a member of of the left for basically since I was a kid is that when I was a kid like the sort of Bill Clinton style Democrat for all the problems was we were <laughs> against censorship because like it was like evangelical censorship of things and it was all about like you know violence and video games and all this kind of stuff and now it's the complete opposite. Like we're the squares. Not like I'm saying that the I right know. people are cool. <laughs> like you know, I don't. I think there's like they're not. There's no. There's no coolness <laughs> to our politics really anymore. Um, but it is a weird turnaround, you know. Like I'm 21, and this is essentially all I've really known for most of my coming of age. Right. And I I hear all the time. I write all the time about being Gen Z and like growing up in a in an era when the majority of college students are self censoring because they're afraid to actually say what they think. And I wow. hear constantly from parents of like literally middle schoolers who are like, my kid got canceled. Like, how does a middle schooler get canceled? And I feel like when we yeah. have this conversation about adults being held accountable, we kind of forget that there's a whole generation of kids that are growing up and looking at this experience and and thinking, I, I can never express myself openly. I need to bite my tongue. I can never kind of delve into the nuance and explore new ideas. And I think that's like really something that just gets totally missed in the cancel culture conversation. It's so crazy. Or my nephew's age, my sister had a child very young and I was interviewing them when they were all visiting me. She has three teenage boys. So they're this age that you're talking about, middle school, high school, and now college. Mm-hmm. And they 
I asked them what they thought about the Trump election because they were all in school when that happened. And they're like, I don't know, but it seems like all the teachers were pretty butthurt about it. I'm like, <laughs> That's how teenagers think. You know, like they're not. It was so funny. I was just laughing. I'm like such a pure answer to a question <laughs> as like a teenage kid because our teachers were literally coming in sobbing. And my sister had to be like, your teacher is insane. <laughs> like it's, it's going to be OK. How do you t- and the kids they made good points they're like they're teaching us about democracy and then they're acting like it's all over and that's not how am i supposed to believe that democracy is working if i don't if you don't have faith that there's ever going to be another president again while you teach me this and just hearing it from like the mouths of babes they keep me kind of in check too because I, they were using um they were making, you know, kids will take those terms and make fun of them faster than adults. So I heard my like, I think at the time he was probably 15 or maybe younger. And he came home and he was like, oh, she was so triggered. You know, they were using it as like, uh, it, it was already a word that they were making fun of and using as almost like a derogatory way to talk about somebody who was overly emotional. And they've grown, and my youngest nephew, he'll be like, I got canceled if a tweet gets lots of engagement, but he's kind of excited about it. Yeah. You know, he's like, mm-hmm. wow. I'm famous. <laughs> I'm like, so I don't know how the kids are internalizing this. I think they're, they are more wary of what, obviously they're wary of what they're saying online and they're self-censoring and they're growing up and we didn't have to think about I mean, I didn't. I'm 43. I didn't have to grow up thinking about any of that. I would be, I'm sure I'd be just canceled if if I was, if I was like a kid these days. So they're more hyper aware, but I don't think that that's, I think it's also just part of like being online all the time. You kind of have to be. But I do wonder, I do wonder how much they're self-censoring and they're not even aware of it. Because that was the thing that for me was the moment where I was like, I can either be honest and be wrong and be criticized and be risk losing my job and be canceled. And I'm in that position that I can afford to do that. Or I can, I noticed I was just not saying things because I was worried about how they would be perceived by my friends how they would be perceived by potential employers in Hollywood and how they would be perceived by my comedy friends. Again, I mean, being in comedy and having it be so crazily witch hunty is such a weird, weird thing. And like you said, just growing up and having it be the right that was very like pearl clutching and and the the moral panic was always coming from the right to have it coming from the left is very disorienting. And I just was like, ah, I've got I really didn't have anything to lose. But that's not the case for everyone. Yeah. And, and I want to be clear. I think the right still pearl clutches a lot. I mean, there is obviously Definitely. like their own version of censorship. And honestly, like anytime you make fun of somebody who's right wing, it's the same response. It's just that it's been pretty steady. It's been pretty consistent. But one thing that's interesting is comedy, though, like to me, comedy was always associated with, generally speaking, like like most of Hollywood is associated with the left. But now you have this cleavage that's happening right now, right? Where I wouldn't call like Dave Chappelle right wing. I wouldn't call Bill Burr necessarily right wing. I don't know. He could be, but I'm, I'm, I have no reason to believe he's one party or the other. But 
you're seeing them being defended by the right and and in many ways not the left. And so there's like a little bit of movement there. Where do you see comedy now? Because it can't be true that every comedian in your circle is like one of these censorious sort of uh, leftists uh, because there are, at least from where I sit, there are comedians, I mean, Rogan being one of them, who who seem to have shifted politically uh, or at least the, maybe people shifted away from them. But I think like... It's not my, I always say, I'm like, it's not my fault. There's so much to make fun of on the left. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) That's like literally Bill Maher's whole thing of like, somehow Bill Maher is now the sweetheart of the right wing. And like, he pulled this Fox News clip of Dana Perino saying that he should run for president. Like, it's just so crazy how like the whole, the whole landscape just shifted under some people who were kind of just sticking in their place. And now (laughs) they're right wing darlings. Well, can I, can I say something about the the stuff to make fun of on the left? There was this moment in New York where Eric Adams, and I'm an Eric Adams fanboy. We could point that out. It's like listeners know this by now. But he, he, and he's like you in the sense that he'll just say anything really. Like, and he's just kind of like, whatever, this is the lot I've made it. Uh, but he said uh, something about people being low skill workers and people just lost their shit. Like, how could you call people low skill? And there were these people who would go online and they would say, you know, my barista at the at the Dunkin' Donuts or whatever has a PhD, uh, and I'm like, why? Why does your barista have a PhD? Why are they working at Dunkin' Donuts? This is insane. Like, like either you're lying, or we need to get in front of this PhD and figure out what the heck is going on. And I think it might even have been worse. It was like PhD in engineering, like something useful. So I'm just like, like, do you not see yourself in the mirror? Like, this is insane. In no. their world, everybody who is in a low wage job is is being oppressed in some way uh and, and it's like it's some kind of conspiracy against them and that like there's some kind of invisible obstacle to this PhD in engineering and that we can't even acknowledge a skill gap uh and so I don't know it just made me think of that it's like there's just moments like this every day where I'm like man like I've spent a lot of time with these people and I, in many ways, like I, we share many concerns, uh, but I, yeah, I, I do think there's one side that's a little f- more funny than the other. Well, I was talking to somebody yesterday just about this and he's an actor who's moved to Atlanta and now he's waiting tables and we were talking about, you know, he was talking about how often he'll be infantilized by the left, like particularly white women. He's like, what's going on with you? as a black man and I was like that you know the male feminists do this to me all the time as a woman too where it's like they'll be kind of taking some kind of hit on behalf of you or on behalf you know getting outraged on behalf of you and I'm like do none of these people work like in a restaurant or job where you talk shit to each other because that's most jobs (laughs) most jobs you're just shit talking all day it's not like you're walking on eggshells and you're worried about HR and you're worried about like saying the wrong thing and you're talking about some stupid nonsensical controversy in the Slack channel. Like you're just trying to get through the day and have like a beer at the end of the day after you go build a house or paint a house or there's just such a massive popular. There's such a disconnect. And that's why I always say so much of this strikes me as class. There's such a disconnect between like the average person in America and the people who are speaking on behalf of the average person in America. Well, the thing about Slack you mentioned reminds me, you know, so after the 2016 election, I started this group called Arena, which I had been down south running a network of charter schools. And so I had been out of politics for a few years 
and I was working with Republicans and actually it was Democrats trying to shut down my school. So I had this, I, I started to build some of the collective eclectic political thinking that has gone into lost debate. But for this four year period of Trump, like I felt and still feel very strongly about him. And so I got back into politics and I created this organization that was like thousands of people strong, people running for office and staffers and all that kind of stuff. And we created a Slack channel right after the election. And you can imagine where this goes. <laughs> Within months of the 2016 election, people were calling each other racists and all these other things. I had to shut down the Slack channel. And people got mad at me because then they couldn't communicate anymore. I was like, I just can't police this anymore. There were people calling. The, the whole thing erupted into uh, accusations of racism because one guy had the temerity, he's a guy in Maryland, to, to just post like, hey, I'm working for this candidate. And, and it happened to be a white male. And people just went at him, be like, we don't need another white male in politics. <laughs> By the way, it turns out a lot of the people shouting this person down were Bernie supporters, couldn't look themselves in the mirror to realize that there was some kind of hypocrisy there. Uh, but it just reminded me of that, of just like, it's exhausting to do work on the left right now. I'm sure there's some kind of echo of it uh, on the right, um, like oh, with this like Liz Cheney because- stuff and Kinzinger and the cult of personality and all that. But yeah, I, definitely. I did what you did, which is like a lot of people don't love some of the things that I say or that we tolerate on this show. Uh, but I'm just done. Like if if it sh- if it closes certain doors, and I'm not a, I don't create equivalents. I don't think that they're equivalent. I still vote. Uh, I like I still have very strong feelings at the ballot box, but I don't think that like the, my quote unquote side is right all the time, and I'm sick of pretending like they are. There's and that statement right there, pretending like they are. I mean, that begs the question: How long did you pretend? A lot of that like they a lot. Were right no, all the for time? sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are a lot of times where I got up, and it was funny. I, I look back at some of the early stuff I was saying in 2016, and then I look at stuff that I was saying three years later. I was literally lying, and I don't know if I was consciously lying, but I was just getting up and saying things. And we were running trainings for candidates, and I and in many I really believe in the work that we're doing. But there are a lot of times I would get in to these rooms and I would tolerate people being disrespectful of each other and and speaking of immutable characteristics and emphasizing them in ways that were wrong. And I think the, for me the biggest thing was the Kamala choice, where it was for me I was like I realized I was really in a bind because I had a lot of experience uh, sending people to her campaign and interacting with her people. And I'm a half Indian person. So like from an identity perspective, if that were my main priority, you would think I'd be all about her. But I just felt like she was wrong. Like I just felt like she was the wrong pick. I felt like both the culture that she had uh, built within her circles and just like the lack of anything that she stood for was like a screaming like red light for us as a party but I, I felt like I couldn't within my position say that because it's like the equivalent of like, you know, criticizing like, you know, like it's like the Beyonce skit from SNL. It's like just people like are like, whoa, wait, hold on. And I remember actually there was a debate and I have this like political podcast where we, we critique Joe Biden. And I was like merciless against Joe Biden and how I thought he performed uh, in that. Nobody really cared that much about that. Then I like I started to float a little bit of a criticism of the way I felt uh, Kamala uh acquitted herself it wasn't even 10 it wasn't even 10 percent of what i really felt about it and it was like the like the, the the it was almost like i was self-centering you're talking about i felt it and i just didn't go any further yeah. and then it was like all right i need to get out of this as quickly as i possibly can still want to engage but that's, that's you know? so good that you guys are doing stuff like this and it's honestly it, like i need the it's easy to just kind of 
as this whole transformation was happening, what happened in my transition is like you suddenly get, um, you become like, oh, see, we got it. We snagged another lefty and yeah. like captured the flag. <laughs> you know, we got one. And and you can be in danger of being weaponized. And I was I was talking to a friend and I said, you know, why does everyone think I'm right wing? And he's like, well, it's not what you are saying. It's what you're not saying again. And I'm like, oh, am I not saying things again? Because I'm worried that I might be. And so that's why my whole philosophy with Twitter has always been like, if you get a lot of followers for saying one thing, you have to like say the opposite, you know, say something that might be the opposite. And my my mantra on there is like, hello, new followers, I'll only disappoint you just yeah. because I don't want I don't I don't want to I, I think probably right now you don't want to be captured by your audience. You don't want to feel no, like you have to I give don't. them and what they really want. it's really hard. Yeah. I've talked to, I've, I, it's hard because how do you, it's like getting outside of the matrix of your own mind. I'm not arrogant or smart enough to think I can outsmart billions of dollars that go into algorithms that are feeding me dopamine all day. So that's a, that is a challenge and it's, it's good for me to sit down and have, you know, conversations where people are saying, well, what does that look like, Bridget? Healthcare, what do you mean by this? What, having more debates with people from the left, because I come from the left. So my sensibility is I am a bleeding heart lefty to my core. And I still, I, my factory setting default is to react to a story where I still will do it where I'm like the left is the nice the nice guys and the right is just like they're they're not good people and the problem I see on the left that really does terrify me is the censorship and that is coming from that is that's coming from institutions that are very powerful that are all sudden like how did the left start defending big pharma I was like what I'm a hippie. <laughs> I grew, how did how did that happen? I don't understand. When did the left become like bootlickers for big pharma? And they're like, dur, 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 get on board with Pfizer. What? I I don't know. Maybe they always were, and I just didn't know it. And seeing kind of big tech, and then the government kind of leaning on tech to do things. That, these are. If this was a right-wing party that was consolidating this much power, we would all be terrified and should be terrified. And it's always kind of, this is the, the stuff on the left that really scares me the most because there's so much consolidation of power. And in the wrong hands, we're, we're, we're not in a good place. Yeah, and I think, you know, to close this out, I think the, the choice I think a lot of people are facing, and this is a big debate I have with my brother who voted for Trump, is there's kind of two threats. There are many different ways of looking at this, but for me, I think of it as like the self-censorship and the sanctimony of the left versus the authoritarian sort of anti-democratic tendencies of the right. And how do you stack those two things against each other when your choice is like, if you're throwing your lot in with one or the other, you're kind of weighing the risks of one or the other. And I think one of the reasons why I, I still tilt, even though like if you line up my policy beliefs, they're kind of eclectic, I still tilt left is because I, I take that threat to democracy more seriously. I take them both very seriously, but I, I think of one as more of a threat than the other, although I take them both seriously. And I think one, to my, my answer to the question of what party I would be looking for if I want to create a third one, it would be one that 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 is both like 
honest about the issues of the left on the self-censorship and shifting standards and the lack of grace and humility. And then on the right, like really good on core democracy issues, you know, and peaceful transfers of powers and things like that. Things like that, it's you know? also actual censorship on the left, though. It's not just self-censorship. People get banned from Twitter yeah. for saying the wrong thing. Yeah. And this is a private business, and we can have that whole discussion, but it's still, there is the thing that, the two things that have been rising for me that are terrifying is the cult of personality and the cult of an ideology. So I don't know which cult is better to join because right. when you put those two things side by side, I see authoritarian tendencies in both parties. And I know people, I was talking to Colin, um, I was talking to, oh my gosh, I'm blanking, but he, he, a comedian was on my podcast and he was like, is there... Is it a weird time that we're living in that you can't be in the center and say both sides are crazy? Like how yeah. how did the people in the middle get to be the crazy ones? Yeah. And that sometimes feels like gaslighting to me where yeah. people have legitimate concerns. You know, when you're when you are when your dollar is worth less and everything is costing more and you're seeing 35% decrease in what you can get at the grocery store, and they're saying, oh, this is no big deal, and this is just you, and this is a right-wing talking point, that feels like gaslighting to people. So, And the, I'm not saying the right-wing doesn't do this as well, because we've the, the gaslighting coming out of the Trump administration was ridiculous. It was, it was maddening and insane. So I think really what people are struggling with is... They they can perceive these things on both sides, different versions of it, whether it's rising authoritarianism here or there. And they they don't really what I hear is like throwing their hands up and saying, I am done with all of this. Yeah. And that's what worries me is that like to come back full circle is that apathy. People who are like, you know what? I'm done. I'm out. I don't want to civically engage or everybody's being radicalized, which is the other thing that's terrifying, is you see people being pushed further and further because if everything is kind of this high stakes, like when people came after you for saying anything against Biden, the stakes were high. You don't wanna yeah. you don't wanna be, you know, supporting inadvertently somebody to to vote for Trump in that instance, I guess, at yeah. that time. Yeah. And if everybody's radicalized <laughs> and more and more radicalized and ev- and or throwing up their hands and saying forget it you know that doesn't that doesn't leave us in a great a great place like we're we're in a di- very dysfunctional moment and i'm not sure i think the people like you can really help try and bring yeah. us back from the brink Hopefully. Thank you so much. We really appreciate that. And Bridget, I just have to say this is the best interview. Where, where can we find uh, more of your content? I know you're on YouTube with Dumpster Fire. You have a podcast. Uh, like, What is your schedule like with all of that? Um, it's crazy now. I just started a mommy blog on Substack oh, because nice. I'm pregnant, and, which is also weird. And uh, and I, I'm going to start publishing a lot of the letters from the politically homeless on that Substack. So it's just Bridget Fetessy. You can find me Bridget Fetessy everywhere. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and I'm, uh, yeah, you can find me on Rumble and you can find me on YouTube for now. 
on Dumpster Fire and Walk-Ins Welcomes everywhere you can get podcasts. And I look forward to having all of you on. I think I'm urging some of you on, whoever's coming on. I look forward. I really just appreciate you guys. I appreciate you for even having me on. And this was really fun. Thank you so much, Bridget. It's been a pleasure.